Narrative Futures. How do the stories we tell shape how we think about the future, the present, and the past? What is speculation for? And how might we construct better narratives for a better future? Narrative Futures is a podcast coming to you from Futures Thinking, a research network housed in the Oxford Centre for Research in the Humanities. My name is Chelsea Haith. I'm a doctoral researcher in the Faculty of English here at the University of Oxford. This podcast was recorded entirely during lockdown under the working from home conditions that that entails. It's also an interactive podcast. Each episode features an interview followed by two prompts or writing exercises designed by novelist and creative writing tutor Louis Greenberg. We invite you to share your responses to these with us via email at futuresthinking at torch.ox.ac.uk. We'll share these on the blog, where you'll also be able to find the full transcript of each episode with links to the books, writers and ideas that we discuss. As the world so radically changes, we hope these conversations and ideas give you insight and inspiration to think about how else we might live and create collectively going forward. In this first episode, I chat to Lauren Birkus about subjective reading, community action, and how storytelling goes some way to challenging capitalist structures. Lauren Birkus is the multi-award winning author of five novels, including The Shining Girls, Zoo City, and Afterland. In the last decade, she has won the Arthur C. Clarke Award, the University of Johannesburg Prize, the Kitschies Red Tentacle, the August de Leth Prize, RT Thriller of the Year, and the prestigious Mbokodo Award for Women in the Creative Arts from South Africa's Department of Arts and Culture. Bjorkus's work has been translated into 24 languages, and her work in other media, including writing comics, television, and journalism, have earned her awards such as the Best LGBTI Film at the Atlanta Black Film Festival and a spot in the New York Times bestseller lists. Her third novel, The Shining Girls, is currently in development as a major TV series starring Elizabeth Moss, and her fifth and most recent novel, Afterland, published in 2020, asks what would happen if a pandemic wiped out 99.9% of the male population. Bjergs is not prescient, of course, but she pays careful and critical attention to the world, and is deeply invested in social justice movements. What follows now is an extract from Zoo City, her second novel following which we'll launch straight into the interview. Enjoy. In Zoo City, it's impolite to ask. Morning light, the sulfur color of the mine dump seeps across Johannesburg skyline and sears through my window. My own personal bat signal, or a reminder that I really need to get curtains. Shielding my eyes, morning has broken and there is no picking up the pieces. I yank back the sheet and peel out of bed. Benoit doesn't so much as stir, with only his calloused feet sticking out from under the duvet like knots of driftwood. Feet like that? They tell a story. They say he walked all the way from Kinshasa with his mongoose strapped to his chest. The mongoose in question is curled up like a furry comma on my laptop. The glow of the LED throbbing under his nose. Like he doesn't know my computer is out of bounds. 
Let's just say I'm precious about my work. Let's just say it's not entirely legal. I take hold of the laptop button either side and gently tilt it over the edge of my desk. At 30 degrees, the mongoose starts sliding down the front of the laptop. He wakes with a start, tiki-tabi claws scrabbling for purchase. As he starts to fall, he contorts in the air and manages to land feet first. Hunching his stripy shoulders, he hisses at me, teeth bared. I hiss back. The mongoose realizes he has urgent flea bites to attend to. Leaving the mongoose to scroll at its flank, I duck under one of the loops of rope hanging from the ceiling, the closest I can get to providing authentic Amazon jungle vines, and I pad over the rotten linoleum to the cupboard. Calling it a cupboard is a tad optimistic, like calling this dank room with its precariously canted floor and intermittent plumbing an apartment is optimistic. The cupboard is not much more than an open box with a piece of fabric pinned across it to keep the dust off my clothes. And sloth, of course. As I pull back the gaudy sunflower print, sloth blinks up at me sleepily from his roost, like a misshapen fur coat between the wire hangers. He's not good at mornings. There's a mossy reek that clings to his fur and his claws, but it's earthy and clean compared to the choke of stewing garbage and black mold floating up the stairwell. Elysium Heights was condemned years ago. I reach past him to pull out a vintage navy dress with a white collar, match it up with jeans and slops, and finish off with a lime green scarf over the little dreadlock twists that conveniently hide the mangled wreckage of my left ear. Let's call it Grace Kelly does Sailor Moon. This is not so much a comment on my style as a comment on my budget. I was always more of an outrageously expensive indie boutique kind of girl. But that was FL former life. Come on, buddy, I say to Sloth. Don't want to keep the clients waiting. Sloth gives a sharp sneeze of disapproval and extends his long, downy arms. He clambers onto my back, fussing and shifting before he finally settles. I used to get impatient, but this has become an old routine for the pair of us. It's because I haven't had my caffeine fix yet that it takes a little while for the repetitive scritching sound to penetrate. The mongoose is pawing at the front door with a single-minded devotion. I oblige, shunting back the double deadbolt and clicking open the padlock which is engraved with magic, supposedly designed to keep out those with a shavi for slipping through locked doors. At the first crack, the mongoose nudges up between my ankles and trots down the passage towards the communal litter tray. It's easy to find. It's the smelliest place in the building. You should really get a cat flap. Benoit is awake at last, propped up on one elbow, squinting at me from under the shade of his fingers because the glare bouncing off Ponty Tower has shifted across to his side of the bed. Why? I say, propping the door open with my foot for the mongoose's imminent return. You moving in? Is that an invitation? Don't get comfortable, is all I'm saying. Ah, but is that all you're saying? And don't get smart, either. Don't worry, Sherry Nangungai. Your bed is far too lumpy to get comfortable. Benoit stretches lazily, revealing the mapwork of scars over his shoulders, the plasticky burnt skin that runs down his throat and his chest. He only ever calls me my love in Lingala, which makes it easier to disregard. Uh, Lauren, I love those opening lines of 
of those opening pages of Zoo City, the moment where you evoke the mine dumps of Johannesburg and the light shining off Ponty Tower. And I think one of the most beautiful things about Zoo City and the kind of the play with genre um, that that novel does is this sort of quality of existential proximity, that the world of the novel is, as we know it, recognisable, but not quite. Um, and that the first kind of the first moments of the animals of the mongoose and sloth and the the human interaction with them. And I wanted to kind of talk about what your impetus is to write worlds that are, um, shall we say, skewed. I think it's like a distorting mirror that we can use to see things more clearly. Mm. Yeah, absolutely. You know, it can take a slight shift in reality, so it's still recognizable and it and it still resonates. But just putting a weird twist on things allows me to talk about big issues in a way that hopefully feels fresh and interesting and can engage people in a way that a straight crime novel or a straight kind of you know social novel wouldn't necessarily absolutely i think there's a trend towards um kind of using dystopian elements or fantasy elements in what are otherwise kind of critical realist texts to think through kind of socio-political problems Um, and your novels do that really brilliantly thank you Johannesburg is so carefully described in Zoo City as our Cape Town in Moxieland, Chicago in The Shining Girls, Detroit in Broken Monsters, and then at the end of Afterland, Miami. And you do extraordinarily careful research for all of your novels, I think really capturing much of the essence of the cities um, in which they are set. But what is it about those cities that are particularly evocative for you? I think, I mean, Cape Town's obviously where I've lived for the last 20 years, although I grew up in Johannesburg. So that that's why kind of Moxieland was reflected in Cape Town. But I think Johannesburg is kind of my, the city of my heart. Um, if I had an animal, it would be Johannesburg. <laughs> um, and Detroit and Chicago felt very familiar in that way. They're very kind of vital, alive, but also just desperate in so many ways and crime-ridden and corruption um, saturated and suffocated and I really it allowed me to kind of play with these themes that I'm really interested in, in um, which is intersectionality and oppression um, across race and gender um, and sexuality and class of course and both Chicago and Detroit are kind of uh, shadow cities of Johannesburg for me in my writing and Hillbrow in particular in Detroit because Detroit is seen as this very deeply broken place and but actually when I was there there was so much vitality the art scene was exploding and I think there is definitely a friction which occurs um which obviously J.G. Ballard talks about a lot between art and very dark times or desperation or brokenness and a lot of really interesting art tends to come out of that friction so I think that's what kind of spoke to me about Detroit with Miami it just felt like somewhere that I haven't seen a lot of in a really interesting way. I had thought about setting the kind of denouement in New York, but I've seen New York so many times and it's really boring, even though there are aspects to New York which are very real and strange and interesting and gritty and much more texture of the city that we don't see depicted a lot, but I just I just couldn't do it. I just didn't want to write about New York. And I felt like New Yorkers should write about that kind of, you know, sub-aspect in a more interesting way. For me, it was Miami just seemed like an electric place, but also this really interesting place, again, with crime and corruption, but also this vitality and this kind of brightness and this very dark shadow self 
but also a lot of kind of mixed race politics and vibrancy and just just a very kind of alive, vital city. It, it really appealed to me. And of course, there's a great art scene there with Miami Art Basel. And yeah, I, I can never resist a good art scene. Yeah, absolutely. I completely identify with that sense of Johannesburg as this kind of this heart city and the, the vibrancy of the place. You can never really get away from it. And it's one of the reasons I, I so love Zoo City. Kind of re- it was one of the first novels that Johannesburg um, featured in for me um, alongside Welcome to Our Hillbrow by Pashwane Ampere and, and obviously Ivan Vladislavich's novels. I wanted to talk a little bit about the engagement with horror and gore um, that a lot of your novels um, do and also, of course, your, your graphic uh, novel work. Um, I'm thinking particularly about Broken Monsters and Afterland with regards to kind of horror and gore um, but these often reference um, art and film and I was thinking about speculation what you've just said now about um, you know, dark times evoking really interesting art and and kind of thinking about how things might otherwise be which I think is a huge kind of part of the work that you do kind of articulating the way things might otherwise be kind of asking always what if I wanted to ask you what do you think each of these forms sort of art literature and film bring to the table politically in their asking of what if I was talking to my 11 year old daughter about this the other day and it's, it's not just opposable thumbs or our kind of overactive, deeply anxious brains that make us separate from other animals. I think we're the, because, because some other animals have forms of language. But I, as far as I know, we're the only storytelling animal. And art is a kind of a story because it's an interaction between what's happening in you and what you're seeing. And it's, you're kind of creating meaning. So all of these things allow us to create meaning. And we live in a deeply cruel and senseless and meaningless world. Um, where just terrible things happen all the time outside of global pandemics and, you know, um, Black Lives Matter protest marches and the way that's being ruthlessly suppressed and um, people being killed in South Africa and gender-based violence or, you know, in America by the police. And it's just, I think art gives us a light. It gives us a light in the darkness. It gives us a way of imagining another world, of engaging with another world, of finding some meaning for ourselves. And that's not necessarily a global meaning. I think that's why art and literature and film is so very interesting because it's how it's, it's such a subjective process. It's how we receive it. It's how we bring it into ourselves and make that meaning inside ourselves, which is why I often talk about how books are a conversation between the reader and the book. And it's not a conversation between the reader and the author because once I've sent it out into the world, it actually has nothing to do with me anymore. It's entirely the resonances which happen inside your own head when you're reading it. And I think that's what makes it so magical. Yeah, that, that sense of magic and the, the kind of co-creation. Um, lots of narratologists write about that um, and talk about that idea. And um, it's kind of, it's interesting when people label authors like yourself, like Margaret Atwood, as, as prophets or somehow prescient of the yeah. contemporary period, right? Um, and, you know, as you say, your book goes out into the world and then there's a moment in Afterland where Cole is thinking about violence in America and violence in South Africa and people commenting on, well, how can you live in Johannesburg? And she says, how can you live here referring to America Um, and there's a line you know black kids get shot in America Um, and then um, and I'm reading that while um, Black Lives Matter is happening and while the protests um, against the 
um, awful murder of George Floyd um, are taking place yeah. and and my engagement with a novel that you wrote you know in the last year is so charged by my experience of you know of witnessing these these atrocities um, obviously online I mean how do you respond when people talk about this kind of profit aspect of, of being a writer who responds so vividly and um, so carefully to, as you say, problems of um, gender-based violence in South Africa, um, police violence um, in the in the states, um, and and patriarchy and you know hierarchical power structures generally. I think, I mean, obviously, I'm not a prophet. Uh, hmm. I do wish I'd patented some stuff in Moxieland, hmm. um, but it's it's just it's looking at society. It's really just being kind of very sensitive to what is happening in our current moment because, of course, police killings and shooting black kids in America has been going on for years. So mm. it's not it's not prophetic for me to say that. It's it's, you know, that was when I started writing this book five years ago, that that was absolutely what was happening already. And it's just being aware of that. It's kind of like tugging on a thread and watching how things unravel and then weaving it into something else, I guess. It's these self evident yeah. truths of contemporary life. Um, absolutely. that you tap but into think, so well. Yeah, and I think as a writer or an artist or a creative, the you are very, very sensitive and attuned to those things. And I think in my daily life, it's something which is really important to me. And of course, that's going to leak through in my writing. And I think, you know, I've spoken about this before, about how having grown up under the apartheid state in South Africa and having been so privileged and having grown up with, in this utopia for white people, with such a terrible cost, with, you know, assassination hit squads and torture units and people being disappeared and going to exile. and just the most horrifying acts. Mm. It's really made me socially aware. And and I really want to kind of put that through and I want to play out those things in my novels and and really kind of use them as a way of examining that and trying to imagine something else. And of course, you know, as I've also spoken about with The Shining Girls and my own personal experience with uh, a young woman I knew who was murdered by her boyfriend, mm. um, at least in fiction, you can have justice. And that's not the way it works in the real world. That's really interesting that you, you talk about um, having justice or creating a sense of justice. I suppose the, the reader will, will experience that, particularly at the, at the end of Afterland. And the, the idea that you're kind of working from a place of having, of having experienced a, a an atrocious um as you say like utopia and um, a utopia kind of in the same sense as um you know stalinism was a kind of utopia there and i think you know that that evocation of 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 justice in a dystopian world as a utopian impulse as frederick jamison would theorize it i think is is quite profound and um like quite it, there is something about it for the kind of contemporary moment of literature um, that sort of critical realist styles seem to seem to be drawn to um, or seem to evoke really, really interestingly. Is there anything that you are kind of looking at or reading or thinking about that you think is particularly important right now with regards to this kind of thinking through alternative justices or justice through fiction and how else we might imagine the present but also the future? Um, I found actually listened to the audiobook of this a couple of years ago when I was look, when I was writing Afterland and doing kind of research on societies falling apart and what what does happen in crisis and it's Rebecca Solnit's book um, A Paradise Built in Hell mm. 
which really kind of explores how so very often in times of crisis people actually rally and they come together and yes sometimes there is looting but there is also um community action and people starting soup kitchens and people creating housing and actually creating their own solutions um and i'm not a libertarian i'm not saying we should we don't need government i think we need a strongly enforced democratically elected government that is not corrupted by capitalism hmm. um but with with you know like a lot of kind of ways to restrict corporations and proper taxation and all the rest of it but i do feel like there's a lot of to be said for communities um rising and it's been so inspiring to see what's been happening in cape town through you know honestly just the beginning days of corona because i think it is going to get a lot worse with the community action networks that have formed especially in cape town where like white communities well majority white communities in kind of the nice suburbs so Cape Town is still segregated across geographical lines because of the way the apartheid government really ripped apart communities and physically removed people um, and shunted them out to like the Cape Flats, which is this kind of very barren and dusty marshland. But what's been so interesting is to see people in the suburbs really rallying to try and help people in the townships, which are typically poverty stricken, people are living in shacks. and create ways of those communities kind of working together and twinning up with the community. So the place I live, Tambuiskloof, has twinned with um, Zuelice, which is a neighborhood of Kaya which is one of our biggest townships. And seeing what the community needs, like creating like electricity vouchers or um, having fundraisers to buy people food or sandwiches and that kind of thing. And I just, I wish we'd had that before. I wish we'd had that kind of community engagement before. And that's why I think the Solnets book is so very relevant and so interesting because we are capable of reaching out and we are capable of that great compassion and that empathy and major corporations in South Africa have donated a couple of billion, I think. And it's like, well, where was that before? And why weren't you paying your taxes before? And why weren't we able to come to this level of compassion and engagement before? Why did we need a crisis for this to happen? I absolutely agree. There's kind of the sense that we were in crisis before this. Um, Completely. The status quo in South Africa is one of perpetual almost crisis, sort of living on the edge all the time. And it, you know, very often bubbles over with, you know, instances of, um, you know, gender-based violence responses to that. I'm thinking here also of, um, you know, the Marikana massacre. Um, and these, these moments where, um, where the press responds, where, yeah, you've got you've got major responses from across the um, the very um, socially and class divided um, society of South Africa, and yet that is that is something that needs to be addressed perpetually. Yeah, absolutely, and it's just ongoing. And I think that's I think that's why we have been able to adapt to a crisis because suddenly it feels urgent, and and it's one thing that we're fighting. And I think that's why apartheid activism was really interesting because you had a clear enemy. And the enemy was the apartheid government and this racist, repressive regime. But if you look at inequality in South Africa, and of course, we're one of the highest in the world. The Gini coefficient here, I believe, is the highest, although I've also heard that said about Brazil. And how do you, what's the enemy there? It's capitalism. But of course, we all, like, profit from capitalism. And, you know, it's a system which we're all deeply, deeply, literally invested in. And I don't know, I don't know how to change that. And I think that's why the response to COVID-19 has been so interesting is because we suddenly have a clear enemy. Here's the enemy. Here's how to deal with it. It's not gender-based violence. It's, it's not these, all these problems which have like a deep societal 
rot and root that you can't fix by throwing money at it. You can't like donate a couple of billion and then be like, cool, we like, you know, built some field hospitals. It's, I don't know how to fix that kind of systemic stuff. And I think in South Africa, we've come so near to it. And I think the, so the construction of the world in Afterland is a really interesting evocation of how that systemic kind of power and how those systemic inequalities are so comfortable and how and how hard they are to work against and to restructure um so the world without men or the world run by women and you've said before you know you set it only three years after um 2020 so 2023 and the choice to sustain the hierarchies and patriarchal structures is an explicit and quite politically charged one and i think that that really that also that evokes that that kind of sense that it's it's so hard to work against these systems um because so many people benefit from them you know, acknowledging those privileges. Um, but do you want to talk uh, talk us through a little bit about the kind of the sense of a world run by women and the 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 proximity to to the world that we know that you um, that you describe in Afterland? Absolutely. Um, I think there's a line in the book which says that the patriarchy is a very comfortable pair of shoes. You can just slip them on. And of course, I was interested in like not having kind of a far future where the men have died out and it's been this woman-led society for centuries. I wanted to, again, like parallel reality. And it was really interesting talking to people when I was designing the book and, and thinking about like what the world would look like. And even someone who's incredibly feminist, who's a leading scholar on gender-based violence in South Africa was like, oh, I wonder what we'll do with the stadiums. And I said, well, maybe the women's teams would actually get to play. (laughs) (laughs) And this idea of like what being a woman is, and of course there'd be communal gardens. And that's what's also been really interesting about these community action networks in Cape Town is that they're majority woman-led and woman volunteers and woman involvement. So yes, of course there's going to be that, but also women are people. And and it seems like quite a radical idea. Um, (laughs) Although I always like to switch that around and be like, feminism is the radical idea that men are people too. And we expect you to act like it. But yeah, we're just as capable of being corrupt, of being power hungry, of being losers, of being violent. You know, being, we're capable of atrocity just as easily. This kind of motherhood gene is, that, that can also be used to justify terrible things. Mm. You know, speaking as a mom who would probably kill someone if they hurt my kid. But yeah, so, so it's just kind of exploring this idea of like kind of female complicity in the system and how actually if all the men died tomorrow, which I hope does not happen for the record. <laughs> that we wouldn't we would struggle to like overthrow the existing systems yeah and i know i I can't remember who said it it might have been might have been ursula Le Guin or octavia butler but somebody said something about how feudalism seemed like yeah it's Le Guin. Le Guin. and maybe you can like dig up the exact quote but like how feudalism seemed like it would always be around and impossible to overthrow but I just don't, I don't, and I know people say the same about capitalism, that maybe we can imagine a way to overthrow it. I just don't know what that would look like and how, well, I do know what that would look like, you know, more, certainly more socialism, universal basic income, but I just don't know how we would get people to give up power to make that happen. Yeah, and your novels deal really well with this kind of, this sense of shifting power and shifting world structures. So I think that that kind of, that storytelling um, goes some way to kind of reimagine what uh, what would be necessary, right? And Afterland is, is a particularly interesting one. It's, it's really, you know, it's deeply troubling that major um, shifts are usually caused by wars or plagues. 
Um, you know, the the feminism movement comes out of women working in factories. Um, mm-hmm. You know, in during the Second World War. Um, obviously, that's that's kind of imbricated in white feminist um, narratives. Obviously, feminism and matriarchal societies were prevalent. Um, and dominant across the African continent in that period, um, and and I'm sure the same is is true of, of other societies. Though my context is of course Europe and, and Africa, and I think that there's yeah there's there's something really interesting in the kind of the 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 push that I think is occurring at the moment in social justice movements towards how do we think about what the world after this um, pandemic will look like. Um, and how do we how do we work together to reimagine that because it is a it is a mode of storytelling we have to tell ourselves a new story about the future absolutely definitely and of course the problem is that some people are telling themselves another story and pushing us further towards fascism and the far rights and authoritarianism you know there's a strong history of women being pushed back into kind of more traditionally feminine roles of having to give up school and having to stay home and clean the house uh, in times of plague. And I think we saw that most recently during um, the Ebola outbreak, where some, I think, I don't have the exact stats, but something, I think it was in the Atlantic, but something like 70% of women who gave up their jobs to go back home and look after the home and to feed their families and to tend to the dying and the dead, never went back to work. And some girls never went back to school. And that's the other imagining that I'm really frightened of. And I think maybe we need to have to imagine brighter and harder and then also act on that and to try and put things into play. But again, you know, our, our current system of government and democracy, it really feels like we don't have individual voices, except on Twitter where we can like maybe, you know, shame some racists. But <laughs> I, I, I just don't know. I just don't know how to, how, I don't know how to bring about that change. And, and, and of course, every civil rights movement has always had a hard pushback from the authoritarian rights, um, historically. So that's also kind of a, a huge fear. And I'm worried about us losing women's rights. And I'm worried about us tipping like harder into fascism. And I'm, hard, I'm really worried about people acting out of fear. And maybe that's what this kind of storytelling is for, this kind of imagining a better future or imagining a different future from where we are now, is to combat fear. Because I think fear is very insular and I think fear shuts you down and you're just so closed. And what we need is more imagination to open up. That's really beautiful, Lauren. It's so hard to work through the kind of the fear and the yeah. the paralyzing quality of this um, and to keep working through it. I mean, I think that's one of the things that uh, I most admire about your work, that you push back against the paralysis that, that things like gender-based violence in South Africa produce um, and the mm. paralysis of of these kinds of capitalist systems because it can feel can feel that way but um you know paralysis is a cop-out um yeah but i don't know i don't know how useful writing books actually is as as kind of a um a mode of action but mm. it's the thing i can do yeah and I, yeah and I, and I honestly feel like art is the only thing we can hold on to right now narrative futures for those writers and speculators listening Stay with us now for writing prompts and exercises designed to encourage putting pen to paper or hands to keyboard, as well as reflection on the writing process. This section is designed and presented by Lewi Greenberg. Lewi is an editor, writing tutor and author born and bred in Johannesburg, South Africa. 
Apart from his own genre-confused novels and short stories, he's co-written five horror novels and a handful of stories as S.L. Grey, collaborating with Sarah Lotz. A one-time bookseller, he's been working as a freelance editor and writing tutor for over ten years. He currently teaches creative writing and drama writing courses for the University of Oxford's Continuing Education Department. Over the eight episodes of Narrative Futures, I'll be presenting a series of writing prompts and exercises linked to the interviews. We hope they'll help inspire you to create and make you feel connected in these isolated times. What is the point? Lauren Bucher says, I don't know how useful writing books is as a mode of action. I'd like to start off with that question that many writers face at least 20 times a day. What is the point? Why bother? Some writers, like Bukers and many of the writers in this series, find fuel in addressing social issues and reimagining futures. Some writers want to entertain. Some writers want to express themselves. You can often find a blend of various motivations. Whatever the reason you do it, writing is hard. It's an awkwardly slow process in a fast world. It's a lot of hard work and a lot of self-doubt for very little reward or acknowledgement. Your rewards are most often self-generated a brief sense of satisfaction or contentment. You might argue that the publishing industry thrives on keeping creators insecure, disconnected and disempowered. My opinion is that the slow depth of writing creates empathy. Art, creative transcendent communication, storytelling, meaning making, whether the ideas are challenging and subversive or comforting entertainment or both, is profoundly important, especially in times like these. That's my opinion. What's yours? What brings you to your notebook or your desk when there are so many easier things to do? What brings you to this segment of this podcast? Why do you want to write? It's not essential to know the answer to this question, but it can help on those more difficult days. It can also go some way to giving your work a central theme or identity. As your first exercise, write a note to your future self or your past self or an imagined or real writer who's struggling with motivation. List the reasons why you write, why you bother. Keep this note. We'd love to see all or any of your exercises you'd like to share. So please email them to futuresthinking at torch.ox.ac.uk and we'll post them on the blog. For your second prompt, I'd like to pick up on Lauren Bukes's idea of a world without men in afterland and turn them into a technical exercise. Choose a scene from a book you've read or a film you've watched recently or from something you've written yourself. The characters should include men and women. Now, reimagine it without men. You could approach this in various ways. You could write a brief synopsis of a longer work outlining how the characters and scenario have changed without men. You could write a passage of dialogue and action, changing the male characters to women. You might rewrite a couple of pages of a script, removing or changing the men. Feel free now to pause the recording, write the piece, and then come back. You might find it beneficial to do the exercises without the discussion in mind. Consider how you approach the task. What work did you choose? Why? Did the male characters disappear altogether, or were they transformed? If they disappeared, what, if anything, filled the spaces they left? What does this new world look like? 
Is it better? Worse? The same? Bukas says the patriarchy is a comfortable pair of shoes and that women are people too, just as capable of being losers, corrupt or violent as men. Consider your vision. Do you think it's achievable? Has your writing been useful? And that concludes episode one of Narrative Futures. If you have any comments or would like to submit work to be featured on our blog, please email us at futuresthinking@torch.ox.ac.uk. You can also follow us on Twitter at thinkfuturesnow. Your host on this podcast is Chelsea Haith, and you can tweet me at Chelsea underscore Haith. And Louis Greenberg is also on Twitter at Louis Greenberg. Thanks to Lauren Bjorkas for joining us on this episode. Next week, I'll be speaking to Mahale Mashigo about Afrofuturism and who South Africa's first black superhero really is. Narrative Futures